0: In my experience, when doing data-driven agent-based modeling, a big bottleneck is the data. We cannot get into the fine-grained level sometimes, which there's also people about talking, oh, why don't we use uh, neural networks in economics? Well, maybe in finance, there's a lot of data, but in economics, you know, it's not that we have a lot of data to be mm-hmm. thrown into neural networks, but AI is solving the other problem for us.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Austrian AI podcast, with your usual host, Manuel Pasieker. Today on the show, we will be talking about agent-based modeling that is used to simulate macroeconomic systems like the British labor market. For this, I'm talking to Maria Del Rio-Shanona, Research Fellow at the Complexity Science Hub Vienna. Maria will not only tell us about ways to use agent-based modeling to simulate the effect of policy changes or external events like the pandemic on complex systems like the labor market, but during our deep dive she will talk about her most recent work that focuses on using NLP to tap new sources of fine-grained data on an individual level, like social media that can be used to feed the next generation of agent-based models. Hello, Maria.
0: Hi, Manuel. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: It's a pleasure to have you today on the show. I'm happy to talk with you about your research, um, the work you have been doing in the field of data-driven economics. But before we maybe talk about your research and more recent publications, I think it would be good that you maybe start to tell our listeners a bit about yourself, where you're from and how, what motivated you and what drove you into the work you're currently doing.
0: Sure. Thank you. Um, So yeah, I mean, in a funny way, I tend to say, uh, I wanted to understand the economy. So I decided to study physics. And, you know, it's also true that I really liked math. And I was a bit undecided over whether I wanted to do economics or physics. And people told me, particularly people doing interdisciplinary research said, well, as a physicist, it's easy to transition into other subjects. And it would also allow you uh, to have a different set of techniques. So with that, I did a bachelor's in physics in Mexico, UNAM. So that's the national university. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, towards the end, I started feeling that the world has several challenges at the moment. And many of them seems to be more out of social stuff, out of social interactions or economic interaction. Particularly mm-hmm. if you look at inequality or disintegration of societies. Um, um, yeah, it, it seemed to be more of an economic problem. So at that point, I decided I wanted to do a PhD, and I wanted to do something with economics. But, um, you know, I wanted to have something in your background. So I looked for research groups that did this type of things, and I ran into Don Farmer. Uh, he was actually giving a co- uh, conference, a talk in Mexico. And I talked to him, and, you know, Don Farmer, he's a physicist. He's famous for uh, going into Vegas and predicting the roulette, making some money. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, he did finance and stuff. And then, you know, he was also interested in more uh, economic problems and how to help the world. And he founded a research group uh, at Dynet Oxford. So that's the Institute for Neoeconomic Thinking. I asked him if I could do a PhD with him. And yeah, it all worked out in the end. And yeah, that's um, how I got into uh, economics and agent based modeling. Uh, and, you know, we had a strong focus on doing it data-driven and trying mm-hmm. to validate our model. So that's sort of my story. I guess.
1: Interesting. Uh, I think we already talked a bit uh, this before the interview that like, I think it's interesting that so many of my guests are, I actually have a bit physics background. And so physics is really one of the the studies that many people choose, like, especially in the beginning and the, maybe the bachelor before then, uh, branching out to different fields. Um, but I think as well, it's, it's an interesting motivation of yours that you say, like the social aspect of like, as well, like uh, helping to make a better world by maybe studying economics, which obviously has a very strong impact on society and the world in general. I think this is a very noble, uh, noble reason to do so.
0: Yeah, well, well, thank you. I think it was, it might have also been a bit insecure. You know, I remember even back then talking about economics with friends and just, Not knowing, you know, not being able to say what argument is correct and what's incorrect. Um, And I thought, you know, mathematical foundations would be in the end what would help us discern that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted something applied to physics in the right way. I have to say lately, though, that I've changed my mind on that. I don't think it's actually mathematical, like, theorem proof type of thing that will get us to an answer. But it's more mathematical statistics types of physics. That is, after we observe the data... And we can see what's really happening in the real world, and we can interpret it and test our models. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, more likely to get us to the truth.
1: Cool. I think sounds interesting. I hope we're going to talk more about it. <laughs> As we're <well, like, laughs> concerned about your work. But if you understood correctly, after your PhD in Oxford, you then moved to Vienna to the Complexity Hub.
0: Yes, I did the four and a half years. There was a the pandemic in between, so I stayed a bit longer in Oxford. And I was well. I feel very lucky that I got this fellowship. Um, so it's the James S. Uh, McDonnell Foundation Fellowship. Um, it's a program that they want to fund people. they 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 think uh, you you fund people's research and give them freedom to do whatever they want, and they'll come up with cool stuff. They also want to fund people that do sort of interdisciplinary stuff or research that wouldn't fit in a particular discipline mm-hmm. that would find it hard to get funding through. For example, for me, it would be particularly hard to get funding through standard economic departments or, you know, even in physics departments, they will tell me you're not doing physics anymore. So I wouldn't have an opportunity there. So this foundation uh, awarded me the fellowship and they tell you, well, you can go wherever you want. Here's the money. Look for an institution that will host you. And uh, I found, well, I had found out a bit uh, about the complexity science hub in Vienna. I think you've probably had other, uh, other invitees from the hub.
1: Exactly. I have one of your colleagues as well uh, on. I think there's a, a big pool, actually, of possible uh, future guests as well.
0: Yeah, well, I, I find the hub an amazing place, right? So, yeah, many people ask me uh, wh- wh- why I wanted to go to the hub, because it's it's a new place. You know, we're talking about it's been six years. But I, I like the idea of bringing people from many different backgrounds, and they're having top researchers from many uh, fields and bringing them together. You know when I when I talk to Stefan Thurner, who's directing, and also Frank Nefke or Peter Turchin, uh, they seem really open about new research ideas. Um, so yeah, I decided to come here and to uh, research, and so far so good.
1: Very nice. Maybe let's dive a bit into like your the research that actually have been, you have been doing in Oxford and as well here in Vienna. Um, which, if I understood correctly, as we talked already, of Mike was uh, in general. Surrounding the topic of data driven economics and simulating systems and understanding those, so maybe for our listeners, can you give us a bit of an introduction about what is data driven economics what is it used for and what have you been looking at
0: sure first of all it's a bit ambitious to say we're the only ones doing data driven economics that's not true you know economics have used data since it existed we've talking about GDP was existed since the 1600 um, so it's in that sense it's you know, bringing data to economics is not new; they've always mm-hmm. been using it. I think the part that's starting to be a bit newer is doing macroeconomics uh, with fine-grained detail level a- and validating models. Okay, so what do I mean? Macroeconomics, I think, I mean understanding things like GDP, understanding things like unemployment. There's macro variables, and now doing it data-driven at the fine-grain level, which means you know not, not only what's the overall unemployment rate. But what would be the unemployment rate of, uh, or the wages, for example, of a medical doctor, and what would be the wages of a janitor or a taxi driver? Uh, mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of heterogeneity. So that's that's the fine-grained part. And then there's the part of validation. It's it's really hard to validate macroeconomic models because it's very hard to predict. You know what's going to be the unemployment, what's going to be the GDP uh, at this big macroeconomic level where we're talking about many variables of a whole country interacting it's it's really really hard um so so far it's been very difficult or there's not been a tradition of validating macroeconomic models there's been a tradition of what they would call micro foundation micro foundations it basically goes into the idea that there's equilibrium in the economy in a way supply will equal demand so in your models you micro found it through mechanisms of optimizing agents that would reach this equilibrium And and that's it, right? But it's not. The focus has been more on microfounding than on actually validating. So the new approach we're taking is doing, yeah, macroeconomics that's data-driven in a way very granular, and trying to take to test the models and test them uh, to see if they're actually able to predict or at least match the data out there.
1: Can you maybe give us a little bit of a concrete example of maybe a prior research you were doing in this field to understand when you talk about, but you already mentioned indirectly when you talked about modeling, in this sense, I understood you talk about an agent-based modeling, some type of actor, which is like operating in this type of simulation. Or can you, or what did you mean?
0: Sure. Um, so agent-based modeling is, it's, it's a fancy word for saying, you think the model works in one way. You write some, you know let's say loss of how you think it works you code them and you simulate it mm-hmm. so for example if uh, for the others, if they ever played age of empires uh that would be you know that's why i like to think it's the classical agent-based model right you have your agents where, which are your workers or your soldiers etc they have certain rules that they evolve
2: mm-hmm.
0: but and you know that that's actually very nice so for those of us that for those that have not played age of empires is this game of civilizations where you can have different civilizations and you grow your societies with uh, farmers and well in the end it's a bit about uh fighting but yeah but there's some predefined rules that let you play the game and there's Mm -hmm. things like technology that would improve your army for example or would let you grow more crops agent-based modeling basically means you look at the world and you think it works one way Uh, you think there's certain laws certain types of agents so more precisely, it would be, for example, workers or households, uh, banks, firms, and the government. That would be an economic agent-based model. And you write some rules, and then you simulate it, and you test different policies. Mm-hmm. There's also a tradition of doing agent-based modeling and not doing it data-driven, right? Because you can write a computer simulation about everything, and you can make it based on data not, or not based on data. And what we're particularly trying to do is do agent-based models that are grounded on empirical data. Mm -hmm. So a concrete example, in my PhD, I developed an agent-based model of the labor market. In this model, agents are workers and uh, they live in a network, Mm -hmm. in a network of occupations. So you can think, okay, you know, I used to be a physicist and then I changed to an economist or something of the sort, or to a data scientist. So in a way... We all follow different career paths and we all have different transitions um so in my model i um i i had i had simulated a labor market where people depending on the state of the economy basically you know if more vacancies were opening for data science and less vacancies were opening up for let's say uh taxi drivers uh then you will have to push towards data science but then the tricky thing there is like well not everyone has the skills to become a data scientist. Um, so there's some, what you'd call frictions in the labor market. So I used to model those frictions, I went to do the, the census data. So in the US, uh, they have data on occupations and they have data of people switching between occupations. And of course, you can see many transitions between physicists and mathematicians. You would rarely see a transition from a physicist to a surgical doctor. Mm-hmm. So this will tell you, well, maybe even if, both those jobs are high skill, they're very different. Uh, so that's there's a friction in there. Even if many vacancies open up for uh, surgeons, you won't have a physicist transition. Um, so on the agent-based model, what we did is we took this occupational mobility network to measure the frictions between the labor market. And then we put an automation shock, which was what we were trying to study, and try and see how people would move through the network and which people would be more vulnerable to automation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So so that's an example. A way in which we validated it is there's something called the beverage curve, which is this uh, vacancy unemployment plot. And so without getting into details, after every crisis, it's actually really sad. After, so during a crisis, unemployment goes up and vacancies go down. Mm-hmm. During a recovery, unemployment goes down and vacancies go up, right? So. The economy is flourishing and you want more people. But what's really sad is that, in a way, so we call this the um, counterclockwise cyclicality of the beverage curve, because what tends to happen is during a, a crisis, as I said, unemployment goes down, unemployment goes up and vacancies go down. But then there's a crisis and vacancies start going up, but unemployment doesn't decrease as fast. So there's a friction there. It means that for the same number of vacancies, unemployed people are finding it harder to get a job. Mm -hmm. And in the way the agent-based model worked, we calibrated it only to match, uh, let's say, the amplitude of the curve, but automatically our model reproduced the counterclockwise cyclicality of the curve. And this is something we didn't put intrinsically into the model, but emerged in itself. So that's, that's a way of validating More recently, we worked on COVID. We worked on understanding the impact the lockdowns would have on the economy. And we predicted in early May, so we predicted, uh, how much the GDP would decrease for the UK during the first quarter. We, if I remember correctly, we predicted like 21% mm-hmm. and the reality was 22%. Uh, we we're one of the best, uh, forecasts, uh, in, in economic terms. And we also could, we validated that not only at the GDP level, but also for different sectors. So how much would retail suffer? how much would transport suffer, et cetera, et cetera. And we did the prediction, you know, this was early May, uh, and then the data came out and we could validate it.
1: Interesting. Maybe at this point, um, just to see if I can, like, to see if I can summarize it for a second for my listeners as well, and if I understood correctly. So if I understood what you have been explaining now, you have been using agent-based modeling to be able to predict future economic events in some way by uh, first looking at macroscopic uh, economical data, like for example, as you said, like um, the probability for someone transition from one type of job to another type of job, um, to then build a simulation defining rules in some way, how those agents, how those individual workers would be maybe searching for new employment if they would uh, lose a position. And based on this then, Like this is where your inputs, if understood correctly. So we are building this um, individual worker simulation, defining rules based on macroeconomical um, data and statistics, then running the simulation into a future of, for example, simulating some kind of uh, environment or like effect, outside effect, like for example, COVID or another thing you were then able to perform predictions and were able then to validate if those predictions were close to what, what we were able to observe in the real world.
0: Exactly. And um, the the reason we push for this is, you know, in the end, it's not like we really want to use models to predict what's going to happen in the future after something. So why are we doing this? Why are we trying to use ABMs to predict, you know, besides maybe because we want to get rich in the financial market, etc. No, it's, that's not really the case. What we want to do is be able to test policies. Mm-hmm. So if you say we're going to put a minimum wage, Uh, There's a lot of debate of, well, actually, that would increase unemployment. And some people say, actually, well, it's not. It actually uh, favors the whole economy. Um, And there's many policies like retraining or even lockdowns or, you know, climate bonuses. All those policies, um, what we basically strive for is having a policy simulation lab, right? Mm -hmm. You have basically the economy working in a computer. You put a policy and it tells you what the outcome is. And that would have great benefits for the society, right? That would really allow us to test which are the correct uh, policies.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I can imagine that this would be very beneficial for, for states to optimize in some way their laws and, and the way how they operate. Um, but if I understood it correctly, like, uh, let's say, Right, there are challenges with this, right? Based on the level of abstraction you're using in your models, probably as well. Like the things that you look at, the things that you don't look at, the things that you take out of such a simulation, things that you ignore, obviously are going to be different from reality. And so my question would be in this point: as you said, in order to verify that whatever you're simulating or that your simulation actually is useful for the things that you're interested in, those were, for example, predictions that you can validate against, like like for example in in the the draw. in GDP, I think you were mentioning a similar. So um, do I understand this correctly, that to some extent, when, you, when you're when you interested in such a simulation, that you define a certain scope of things and granularity, that you look at things, you you make such a simulation, build some, such a simulation, and then you, t- you try to verify as well how precise and how, um, how much you can interpret the results of such a simulation by verifying it against, let's see, things in the real world.
0: Exactly. Yes. Yeah, we try to make predictions and see if our predictions work. And if not, then we try to think, well, what did we get wrong? What are we modeling incorrectly?
1: Mm-hmm. And um, as you said already before, so this has been done already for some time to some extent, like based on macroeconomic data, if understood correctly. Um, But you said, well, you you want to, let's say, move forward to be able to do even like more agent-based modeling or types of systems which are operating on a more granular level, which are operating on more like an individual level or what is the motivation behind more recent work you've been working on?
0: Yes. So one thing I should say is we should not underestimate how hard is it to predict. So actually, there's, there's a tradition in economics of when you do macro stuff, it's it's hard. You know, people acknowledge it's very hard to predict, and actually they don't attempt it. Usually, they don't attempt to predict. Um, mm-hmm. It's more about un- understanding underlying mechanisms. And th- the truth is, it's it's super hard to predict. In part, because uh, when you do macroeconomics, you you know, it's it's a bottom of thing. And it's very hard to observe what's happening at the fine grain, detailed level because we don't have data on that. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, for good reasons, a lot of that data is private and we don't know what's going on. So I think a major bottleneck uh, at the moment for agent-based modeling that can be data validated, that it can actually be able to do some predictions, is the fact that we don't have enough data
2: mm-hmm.
0: at the bottom level, right? So we want to model the economy bottom-up. Right from the workers, from the firms, their actions. How do they interact, and how all of that merges into things like unemployment rate or GDP? But it's it's really hard to observe the fine state level. Part of it is because you know some data either doesn't exist or is proprietary. But you know, in the terms of data that doesn't exist, uh, one of the things uh, we we're talking about the other time is how do you know uh, the mental health of people? How do you know those state? How do you know what they want? While there might be some surveys that ask this, they either just ask a set of predefined questions that can bias them. There's really few uh, publicly available data on that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly uh, one of the things AI can help us a lot. It's a way of uh, of observing the world because, okay, maybe there's not data. There's not structured data, right? I can't go to the government and ask for their survey on mental health. But the thing is, People put their data out there all the time. We have things like Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, uh, where they're expressing their feelings and all of that is data. It's mm-hmm. just unstructured data. It's data that it's 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 hard to put it as it is into a model. But AI is pretty good at understanding text data. And in particular, NLP is really good at telling us that.
1: Mm-hmm understandable and uh, this is actually a, as you said, a perfect segue to to on the part that we want to talk about your recent publication in this field in this area so if understood correctly exactly what you have been describing now was the focus of one of your recent publications trying to investigate social media and how people talk on social media about um, their, um, their emotional state to an extent their feelings concerning in the sense i think it was unemployment or the the Great Resignation, in order to understand and be able to model this. Is this correct?
0: Yes. So it's this is still work in progress. So we have a pre-print out that we put in August. Um, and the question was, to give some background, there is this phenomenon called the Great Resignation, which basically means in 2021, a lot of people started quitting their job in the US. So there was basically after the pandemic, a lot of people were like, you know what, I quit. Mm-hmm. And... The unemployment, the, sorry, the quitting rate hit record high. Uh, we're talking about record high in April 2021, record high in November 2021. Since uh, data we have at least in the 2000s, but even before. Mm-hmm. And the question was, why? Why are people quitting? Okay, well, so part of the story is there were a lot of vacancies opening up. Uh, after COVID, COVID was a crisis. And then there came the recovery. Uh, and, you know, during recoveries, a lot of job vacancies open up. So partly people were switching jobs, and when you switch a job, you quit. So that's part of the explanation. But when you really look at at DNA uh, like the variables, there's there's a lot, um, there's a lot of quits. Like even you know, we've had economic recoveries before and we never see this record high in quits. And uh the news media was uh hitting all this um this titles that were like, you know. The Great Resignation, you know, people are tired of working for jerks or this mental health burnout. It was all about burnout. It's, it was a lot about toxic work. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, we're talking about businesses spend a lot of money trying to recruit people. For everyone uh, they're out there working, like know that it's really hard for businesses to get the right workers. So, yeah, don't, don't underestimate your value because uh, I can tell you just from the data, one of the things that uh, businesses struggle the most is getting uh, the right uh, workers. Mm-hmm. So having a lot of them quit, and when you're in a economic recovery, it's it's difficult to recover if people are quitting their jobs. It, it also feeds into all the questions about inflation and all that stuff, but I don't want to get into that. Anyway, the thing is, a lot of people quitting, part of it is because there's some job vacancies open, opening, but there's an, another part of the story that people are claiming that it's mental health and that it's toxic work culture so can we test that Mm -hmm. you know i I, as i said i I don't have a survey that tells me the mental health of people so what we did is uh we went to reddit so reddit has a subreddit called our jobs by the way it also has a subreddit called anti-work uh for those familiar with the great resignation story you will know a bit more about anti-work but anti-work um there's a particular group of people there that see themselves more like revolutionaries Mm -hmm. and i think it's it's a very interesting subreddit to study, but we we wanted to get more into the mind of the regular person, you know, the average job, what, they, what they're doing. So our jobs, it's a subreddit that has been gone since been going on since like 2016, enough data since like 2018. And people post about, they ask for career advice a lot, or they uh, talk about their experience. They say like, hey, I just got a job offer. Should I get it? They offer me this wage. Is it better than my older job? Or they say like, uh, I hate my manager, I just want to quit.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So we or, or things like, oh, should I move for this new job? This, it's it's really about people expressing their concerns, right? So when we saw this data set, we thought, like, well, you know, here we have people indirectly telling us if they're quitting, if they're not quitting, if they're getting fired, if they're not getting fired, and why. But how do we interpret this? And by the way, this so this was a project that, done with a lot of people. So, uh, uh, I mean, you can see it in the print, print, but, you know, Alejandro Melody, Renata, Luning and Lovitza and all from different schools or from different universities and with different backgrounds. So we had people from psychology, linguistics, sociology and economics and Mm -hmm. myself. So it was very interdisciplinary. And we were actually working on this subreddit before just to understand the impact of being of job displacement, but then when we started hearing about the grievous resignation, we understood we had the data there to answer those questions.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: so long story short, how do you answer it? Well, the question is the simple answer is topic modeling. So in a topic modeling, the idea the idea of topic modeling is to understand what people are talking about. So basically we wanted an algorithm that would tell us if people were quitting uh, or, or being fired, well actually we were focusing on quitting and why? Mm-hmm. Why? What did they talk about? Did they say, hey, I quit because I have long COVID? Or did they say, hey, I quit because I can't stand my manager? Or did they say, hey, I quit because I'm switching jobs? Uh, So I don't know how
2: technical we want to get I I
1: think it's completely fine that, that we talk maybe a bit about exactly like a bit more on the technical side about topic modeling as being an unsupervised type of modeling where you, as you said already, you can, in some way, you can make, build a system that is analyzing text and classifying fragments or parts of text as one of the possible clusters or the centroids and one of the possible topics that you can, if understood and correctly, you can look at um, the classified text and as well, and you can study then to understand which topic is representing, um, which element or possible, um, discussion topic that you can then understand. Okay. You can quantify, um, how, or which topics are trending, How which topics are things that that people are discussing more than they did, for example, before, as, we, as well as you did in your um, in your paper.
0: Sure, okay. So what's a topic modeling? The basic idea, so yes, you said it's unsupervised, uh, which means no one tells us this type of text talks about it. We have to infer it, right? We just get a bunch of data and we have to infer it. So how does one go to do it? The idea is that, a topic is a distribution over words. So if I'm talking about football, I'll talk about running, passing, a ball, score, the net, the goalkeeper, mm-hmm. right? If I'm talking about cooking, then I will say salt, uh, pepper, uh, cashews, uh, curry, etc., mm-hmm. right? So the th- You know, intuitively, when we talk about a particular topic, we know we're more likely to mention certain words. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay.
0: So then um, a topic is a distribution over words, and then a document is a distribution over topics. You basically have parameters. The basic one would be, for example, a Dirichlet distribution. uh, So a probability that each word appears in each topic, and then the probability that each topic is in each document. Mm -hmm. It's it's a Bayesian uh, framework. And then you fit this models. As everything in NLP, there's different uh, types of modeling. Set. We'll use the structural topic modeling, uh, which is uh, fairly used now in, in in sociology. But towards the end, the important thing is that you have for each document. So in our case, each document was a Reddit post mm-hmm. saying "I hate my boss and I quit," for example. So then that document had, you know, was made of different topics. So it was, you know, fifty percent toxic work, and 50% my boss, you know, Mm -hmm. if those were at the top. And then because each document, so in this case, each post, uh, had a timestamp, we could analyze how this was changing over time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, the first thing we did is to say, how did the work discourse change before and after the pandemic, right? You know, all of a sudden, you know, you expect the pandemic changed how people talked about work. And yes, we saw things like there was a lot more people talking about working from home and remote work, which was about remote jobs. And then the other thing we saw is a drop in talking about commuting or drop about, should I move to L.A. for this new job?
1: hmm. Understand so in some way as well. You had the opportunity here to verify, like as well, how well the topic modeling was working. How well you were able to quantify exactly the analyzing those texts by having certain assumptions about things that you that are very likely to happen in discussions based on the effect of COVID.
0: Exactly, which is you know when you're working with unsupervised learning, you need to know a way that your your analysis is working. And this was you know you expect these things to happen, and we saw them. I, I should also mention we did other um, like validation tests, like you know, we counted the number of people that were talking about quitting. so you know, um, so we did that with keywords like switching jobs, I just quit, et cetera, etc. Cetera. And you see the people talking about quitting. Uh, it's funny. we We counted the people talking about quitting and talking about firing. The people talking about being fired or, or firing in general, spiked during the COVID-19 pandemic. And mm-hmm. so in, in the paper, we have this plot where we put the US uh, fire, uh, well, layoff rate and quitting rate. And basically the firing rate up goes up in COVID and then down. The quitting rate goes down during like COVID. No one quit their job mm-hmm. during COVID. And then it goes up during the great resignation. And on Reddit, we found this, exactly the same thing. You know, spike in fires during COVID, then going down. And then uh, the quitting rate uh, starting going up during the Great Resignation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, that, that was a way just so that was like when I saw that plot, I remember thinking, OK, we can really study the Great Resignation with this. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw the, you know, what are the topics that increased on in the pandemic and I saw working from home and remote work or remote jobs, I was like, OK, you know, like our topic modeling is really capturing what people are talking about. Okay, but then maybe let let, let me get to the answer, you know. Did did we actually see more people talking about uh, mental health? Uh, Yes. So actually, we saw there were two topics. By the way, the way this works also is like, you know, in the end, no one labels the topic, right? You just have a bunch of documents that have certain words that are there a lot. So the algorithm tells you the the freq, so, you know, those words that are important. What you do to label the topic is you look at the important words, like, the words that are prevalent in mm-hmm. the in the topic and you also look at certain documents or so certain posts and you read them and you know after you read 20 posts or any particular topic you can really tell yes these people are talking about working from home yes these people are talking about mental health issues so it was things like you know i had a panic attack uh i'm getting so anxious about my job uh things like i want to quit but i know we're in the middle of the pandemic should i do it but yeah so so we had uh, two topics that were relevant one, it was a lot about mental health because people actually mentioned um, I, my mental health is suffering. I have depression. I have anxiety. So it was more like technical. And then the other was work distress. So mm-hmm. they were like, yeah, it that was more like, yeah, I'm super stressed about my job. I can't sleep well. Uh, so less technical, but also just talking about work distress. And these two topics, you can see them increase after the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they start increasing a lot. Funnily enough, and, you know, significantly. So we we, we did econometric analysis and all of this to actually test, you know, that the increase was significant. Uh, and I'll I'll get back into this. But just to say, basically, we see them spike after the pandemic. I should say I'm always talking about after the onset of the pandemic, because we all know we're sort of still halfway through this, halfway through. I don't know which uh, variant. But yeah, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm talking about the onset of the pandemic. So it, it goes up, especially like mid after the onset of the pandemic, and then they actually start going down during the Great Resignation. Uh, not totally, but it seems like the Great Resignation is bringing some relief. So it mm-hmm. does seem to be that people are quitting and then they're not talking that much about it. it's, it's still higher than before the pandemic. But yeah, it does seem that the great resignation brought some report.
1: I understand, but just to, just to note here, in side mark, if I understood correctly, as you said, you were able to show that like people are then talking less about those topics or like using less those keywords, assuming in the best case it's because they left their jobs that maybe caused some of this distress, and not maybe because they had like other distress which uh, made them to, to, to talk about let's say other or even worse things.
0: Right. Um, So, okay, one thing to say is like, during the resignation, it went a bit down, like it were, it's particularly mental health, actually work distress, it actually stayed the same, or actually even went a bit up towards the end, but particularly mental health, it went a bit down during the pre-resignation, it was still higher than before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, basically in 2021, it was a bit better. So mid 2021, it was a bit better than 2020. Mm -hmm. But mid 2021 is still worse than 2019. Mm-hmm. But so, go- going back to your question, like, is, is this because they're quitting? Is it just because they have other stuff to talk about? Well, so I, I should say we can't tell. I would say I don't think it's because they're talking about other stuff, because the topic modeling, I, we didn't see any other topic uh, that was particularly going up. Well, one was switching jobs, but all, all the things that were to do with Uh, actually another one was like toxic work. We also found one that was toxic work that was not statistically significant. So that's why we don't talk as much about it. But yeah, so we didn't see the rise of other topics. So I wouldn't wouldn't blame it on that. What Mm -hmm. could be the case is that maybe people stopped talking about it in our jobs. Maybe they started talking about it in Mm anti-work. Maybe they started talking about it in work reform. So we cannot be conclusive about that. I Mm -hmm. can only say what we found. One thing I should say is that what I talked about is, is, you know, broadly speaking, our results, the way we, you know, got more confidence in them is we compared how the work this course changed for those people that quit their job and for those people that were only talking about work. So in our jobs, you find people are talking about quitting, but also about like, hey, I just got a raise or I don't know if I should study X or Y, mm-hmm. you know, like very like things that have nothing to do with quitting. And why are we talking about that? Because in, pr- in a principle, we want to know that, you know, it's not that everyone talked, like basically everyone talked a bit more about mental health after mm-hmm. the pandemic, but we want to know if people that are quitting are more likely to talk about mental health than those people that are not quitting, because mm-hmm. that glimpses a bit more into causal effects. I don't want to get into causality because uh, it's, it's, it's a very hard thing to test. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, one thing that gets us closer to causality is comparing a group that is talking about quitting and a group that is not talking about quitting. They both saw the same intervention, in this case, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. They both saw an increase in, oh, they talk a bit more about mental health. But the people that are quitting are talking more about mental health than those people that are not quitting. Mm -hmm. And that gives us a glimpse into saying, yes, it does seem to be the case that mental health was driving to some extent the Great Resignation.
1: Mm-hmm. I understand. Um, to maybe tie this back a bit to like what you what we've been discussing before with the with the agent based modeling. Do. But I do understand it so that what you have been describing now with analyzing, for example, the Reddit or the social media posts in this sense is describing, like, maybe the underlying motivations or the other underlying reasons why, for example, a certain agents are uh, behaving in a certain way, and to some extent, then the macroeconomic effect of uh, these individual decisions. Is there a way to tie this back or like to use this then in, in, in a type of agent-based model in a, in, in a simulation scenario?
0: Yes, yeah, so, I, mean, I, I mean, I'd love to say yes. That's what I'm striving for. You know, in the end, I think we just, you know, I, I haven't had enough time to work on this and there's not enough people working on this. So this is also a motivation to your audience because mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of work to do here. As I said, in my experience when doing data-driven agent-based modeling, a big bottleneck is the data. We cannot get into the fine grained level sometimes, which there's also people about talking, oh, why don't we use uh, neural networks in economics? Well, maybe in finance, there's a lot of data, but in economics, you know, it's not that we have a lot of data to be mm-hmm. thrown into neural networks. But AI is solving the other problem for us. There's a lot of data on text. Mm-hmm. So we can, you know, get more data from the text and put it into an agent based model. Ideally, I would like, you know, my dream would be to have. Uh, in the end, a model of the labor market. So I mostly work in labor economics mm-hmm. and study, you know, sure, how people switch between jobs. And in that, you would put some behavior, right? And there's there's a whole stream on behavioral e- economics that they do more. Um, they do more experiments in the laboratory, but, it's, you know, those things are really expensive to do. But you could, you know, here, you know, we have an insight that mental health plays a role in the decision of mm-hmm. workers. And you could put that into the agent-based model. And not even that. Because this is online data and you can look, can collect it as it goes, you can really have a model that works in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say, like when we were modeling COVID, one of the reasons like our work uh, got picked up, you know, by venues like the IMF, for example, so the International Monetary Fund and other policy venues, is because we we're very fast at putting results out there. And you know, when you need to act fast, you need to do things quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we we're one of the first people to have results ready in time that, you know, you could do something about it. And we could do that because we're doing it data-driven. So I didn't talk about that, but at that point, we were talking about skills, things that were already online, and Mm -hmm. we could check which people were working remotely or not working uh, remotely, for example. But yeah, what I'm saying is there's a lot of data out there. It's just unstructured data. Mm -hmm. It's tech data. But in principle, AI could help us understand that data Here I'm talking in particular about NLP and then feed it in real time Mm -hmm. to this economic models, into this agent based models. And this feeds back into the dream of having, you know, a policy laboratory where you say, hey, should I do this policy or that policy? What would be better for society? And -hmm. then your computer can give you an
2: answer.
1: I understand makes a lot of sense, but then there's something that I actually wanted to ask you about reading and part of your publication as well. And this is like the limits of the, let's say of this type of social media and this type of data, you already talked about it that like, as you said, like to certain extent to this type of, let's say the um, policy simulation that, that you're thinking about the currently some of those limits is the availability of data of the availability of data about individual actors in the system. And my question is um so when you talk about macroeconomic simulations and, and the data that you're using for this type of simulations, if understood it, this is very structured data, right? Is this is data to some extent like GDPR or like is it critting rates or similar things which have been verified. So on one side it is very structured and on the other side you have like a high you can be to certain extent if you're not sure about the quality of the data. So my question is if you are using then or tapping into like all kinds of social media data Data or other type of data which you can extract to some extent from public sources. How much, on once that, how how far can you really go? So, what are the limits there? you're that, that saying that you're able to trust this data, or this data is of high enough quality to be then using in in your simulations. And especially how you then able. You part already talked about it, how you how you then. Combine this with, like, say, the or in which way is this really combinable then with the high quality data on a macronomical scale and, let's say, the more much more noisy, maybe less trustworthy data to some extent that you can collect from social media?
0: Yeah, I I think that's an amazing question, Manuel. Like, um, so what we need to do, that's why we've always been pushing for validating models, right? Otherwise, you know, if there's a huge bias in social media, that's what's going to go into our model. So we need several things. One is a better understanding of social media and how representative it is of the actual society. Um, and if we can measure that, then we can unbiased a model, for example. And then the big thing is actually validating uh, the models. Now, I should also say, you know, not all data can come from, comes from social media. So, for example, there's, there's companies that have collected online CDs
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: of, of, of people and they have massive repositories. And here you see the whole career path of people uh, have in mind is that social media is not the only data. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, for example, there companies that have recollected uh, CVs, so resumes online of people, and this tell us their skills, their trajectory, and it can also help us give better advice in terms of retraining. And that's something, for example, that type of data could very well fit into the model I talked about the beginning, in the mm-hmm. beginning about the labor market. Um, so yeah, it's 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 an avenue to explore. I don't think we're there yet. But mm-hmm. I think this studies opened the possibility for emerging uh, between AI and incorporating this into an ABM. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, the other thing I have to say is, you know, we use topic modeling. This was done probably 20 years ago. It's, it's considered an old uh, technology. I mean, we use structural topic modeling, so it's a bit more advanced. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, uh, there's a lot of talk about transformer models. And I think that can also help us a lot. Um, in the study that we did, we did run into some boundaries. For example, we weren't able to correctly discern a topic about like physical health stuff, mm-hmm. so things like healthcare and stuff. And we weren't able to do it because the algorithm confused things about, like, I had to go to the hospital or I had to go to the doctor with things about, like, should I become a nurse or a doctor? Because mm-hmm. it was only talking because it shared this, and also a lot about scheduling issues, because I have an appointment with my doctor or I have an appointment with my manager. They're very different things. Mm-hmm. but the appointment word tends to be very common I uh,
2: and
1: this yeah. is, it is in the sense very keyword based, as I understood correctly, and it was less able to really understand the context under which certain of those words are used and to maybe influence as well like the the association with topics.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's uh, the news having coming up, and uh, actually, if someone in the audience would like to talk more about this, I'm I'm very happy to collaborate on these topics. Because, uh, yeah, I think you know, I think this is as I, I guess everyone in this podcast says this. You know, AI brings so many opportunities, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of things to work out there. And it's important to use AI for social good. And yeah, I'm excited to keep on working on this.
1: Perfect. Actually, one of my last questions that I wanted to ask you as well upon your work, and you already touched upon it a bit, was about like, what do you think, like, what are future sources that one can tap into? Like, you have been mentioning like, social media and you mentioned like, uh, like Facebook, Twitter, Reddit in this sense. Um, I think many of us have seen this already as like sources of of publications and social, social kind of analysis. But um, what do you think what will be future sources? So, do you see something that is rising for maybe in the academic sector, or do you see something which is um, then used in some way which hasn't been used in the past?
0: So, there's things like description of companies. For example, in the US, every public company has to uh, fill in a report basically to investors saying what they did, what they expect. So, I know some work uh, by Stephen Hansen looking into this. It's very interesting. I think there's also uh, some work, um, I think it was that also did some work on looking, uh, for example, into petitions. Mm -hmm. And there might also be some work on looking into policies. Right. So what do people talk about policy? Penny Neely has some preliminary results, I know, of uh, looking into into policy scenarios. Uh, Basically, what are the policies of climate change? So I think, uh, yeah, there's also more, you know, official documents that can be a bit, Social media has a huge problem with bias, right? Like the people mm-hmm. that are on Twitter are not representative of the average person. But, you know, if you talk about, you know, every, uh, I think every publicly listed company in the U.S. has to fill in this report, you know your sample, right? It's publicly listed companies, which has a bias in its own self, but you, you know exactly what it is. If you know every government puts in a report in this size, mm-hmm. uh, this type, um, that's another way of, of knowing it. Uh, So I think that that would be uh, perhaps new sources. And well, of course, I guess uh, I I should mention, you know, all the sources, all all the social media like TikTok, Mm -hmm. right? We're talking about images and videos. And I I was going to say, I haven't seen any work on this. I think there is work out there. I'm just not familiar with the literature. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, this this is uh, ever evolving and we just have to uh, remain open.
1: And so going towards other modalities, even beyond text and and unstructured text in this one, to me with an extract as well, what is happening in the world as well to tap into this type of sources and information. Exactly. Very interesting. Nice. I think you've been really yeah, giving a wonderful overview of what, what is what is currently being done in this field and what is possible. I was just thinking like before, maybe as wrapping up um, our discussion, wh- what are you currently working on and what is your future work? What are you uh, researching and what, what is, what's the next work that you're focusing on?
0: Right. Uh, that's a great question because I've been asking myself the same thing. Uh, one thing I'm, I'm still working on is this model I talked about at the beginning of uh, labor market transitions and how people move. Uh, I would like to validate that model a bit better. I would like to, so I validated at the macro level by showing it reproduced a, a common, the counterclockwise cyclicality of the beverage curve, which is a phenomenon. Uh, but I would like to fine tune it to see if we can actually uh, predict job transitions. So mm-hmm. after a shock, where do people go? Uh, where do people want to go? Where can we help people go? Because I think I think we're going to be in a period that there's a lot of transitions coming up. Um, there's automation. Uh, we really need to push for clean energy. I think we're going to see also an increase in in healthcare providers, uh, which is also good. So yeah, I, I think that's, that's one. I, I still want to uh, model more the labor market. Mm-hmm. And the other is, I think there's so much text analysis data. Uh, for example, the CV repositories that I've mm-hmm. mentioned. Uh, that could help us. And other sources, I have to say, I always remain open. Uh, so it's always hard for me to say what's my next step. But I know, or, or I think so at least, that I'm going to be doing data-driven economics, trying to validate my models, and working future of work, future of well-being. That's around what I think of working
1: great awesome sounds very interesting but well, with this i want to thank you very much marie for coming on to the show and i wish you all the best with your future research and like exploring new sources for data-driven economic modeling
0: perfect thank you very much marie